0: I'd love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, Chapter 3. Your sermon notes in your bulletin, as always, will be a big help to you. Um, and as you find your way to Mark 3 and your sermon notes, I would love to invite you to pray with me, please. Father, thank you so much for your gracious care, your patience with all of us. Uh, thank you for the time in your word this morning, open it before us. I pray for uh, Pastor Kevin in his ministry at Central Bible today, for Pastor Tyler in his ministry at Grace, for Pastor Matt in his ministry today at Temple. And pray together that, Father, you would honor your word as it is preached in each place. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, today we return to our study in Mark. We took a week off last week, as you know, to hear Stefan Gustafsson. Um I've heard him say that multiple times very fast, and I cannot quite do the way he does as a man from Sweden. Uh, all of his uh, three sermons from last week are on our website under media. If you want to hear those, if you came to one and missed the others, you should go. Apologetics for a new generation, go hear those is what I mean. But, but we come now then back to Gospel of Mark. Your sermon notes in the bulletin reflect that as well, of course, a return to where uh, has become our pattern. But um, Mark 3, 1 through 12, then. Uh, a couple of things. Uh, under today's text, if I could just put a little context on this, all right? Today's preaching text has two sections in it, very markedly different. Verses 1 through 6. And verses seven to twelve, the first section is a continuation of a of a larger section that begin at chapter two, verse one. There's great unity from two one to three six. In fact, there all there are five conflict stories. That's what you find one after the other. Jesus in conflict. So at the very beginning of this sixteen chapter gospel story, Mark is painting a picture of Jesus as a as a controversial figure. He really is. He is not the Messiah that some people are expecting. I mean, he breaks the rules. He does. I mean, you have to admit it. I mean, they're expecting a human Messiah, not a God-in-the-flesh Messiah, not one who comes and says, your sins are forgiven. Who says that? Um, Heals people, for goodness sakes. I mean, we're expecting a Messiah to throw Rome out, as the invading power, but not one who, who says these audacious things. He breaks the rules on who you hang out with. He hangs out with riffraff. You're not supposed to have dinner with people like that. Apparently our Messiah doesn't know it. He breaks our, our rules on fasting. And then there's this business of harvesting on Sabbath. Harvesting on Sabbath. What's he thinking? And you come to today's text. More of the same. He breaks the rules. Well, We get to think about this together. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12. I have all of this under the the heading, as you see. Do you have a hard heart? And I ask it about us, because what good is looking at the Bible if it's only about looking at some ancient people and saying, what was their problem? That isn't really the question of the day. The question is, what's going on with us? And frankly, do you have a hard heart? So we're going to talk about that today. Be prepared for me to meddle a bit with your life. Um, Brace yourself. It's coming. But let's hear God's word. Chapter 3, 1 through 12. We read, Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. God's Word. Wow. All right. So, uh, chapter 3, of course, is a continuation of the story, and you'll remember uh, from all of your uh, learning about the Bible through the years, that when the Bible was first written, it didn't have your chapter and verse markings. Those were added later for convenience, so that on a day like today, I wouldn't have to say, well, go a little ways in, further, 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 and there on the left. It says, sort of this, and you have to find it. So, I can just tell you. And so chapters and verses, though, added later, the way chapter 3, verse 1 begins, again, it makes it very clear it's part of the same story. Again, he, so conflict story number 5. Here we go. Uh, The the tie-in is very, very clear. Now, if you look at the text, it's very interesting that that, that Mark describes people that you know well. Verse 2, they... That shadowy group of people where you, you know them because you talk about them sometimes. You say things to someone else like, you know what they say, it's them. Uh, you know, they're all talking about me, our kids say someday. Everyone at school, who? Well, you know, all of them. It's that shadowy group, them. Sometimes people say, well, what do you mean by them? Is it 12 or is it two? And if it's two, Who cares? Well, we try to do that to our children. Uh, But in the text, this they is there for a bad reason. The they that is here, first of all, they're in the synagogue. Synagogue isn't the temple, you understand. Temple's in Jerusalem. We're up in Capernaum. So enter a synagogue. A synagogue is a teaching place. It's a Jewish teaching place. And there's this guy with the withered hand who, by the way, just to cast all the characters in their place, Because he has a withered hand, he is ceremonially unclean. And as long as he's had the withered hand... Um, that's the case. Now, we're not told a number of things. Like, what happened? Was this polio? Was he born with the withered hand? Was this the result of an accident as an adult? What's the deal? How old is he? How long has he been in this condition? We don't know any of that. All we know is his current circumstance. And, of course, uh, we, as, as we are coaching all of us in, in our approach to inductive Bible study, asking questions of the text, as, uh, which some of you are learning to do, others of you are... Maybe struggling to do I'm going to give you some easy ones today when, it, when we've asked you as leaders Hey, ask questions of the text Here are some Who's the guy? What happened to his arm? Um, how long has he been in this case? How old is he? Uh, what does it mean for him to be ceremonially unclean? I wonder what he does for a living Can he work? Does he have a job that you can do with one hand? Um, was he a beggar? Uh, those are all good questions to ask at this moment. Not, not saying there's answers, but it makes you wonder. You know, um, a certain publication has a phrase about this. Uh, it says, "Inquiring minds." See, <clears throat> why do you know that? Inquiring minds want to know. Well, it's a, it's not a bad way to train your mind as you read the Bible. Where did that come from? What's everybody thinking? What would he's thinking as he's standing there? Probably a plant, if you will, from. Them. They. They are watching Jesus. And now you learn something else here as you ask questions about they. This crowd. They are watching Jesus to he, see whether he would heal on Sabbath so that they might accuse him. So their motive. They've come to a place of teaching. And their motive is to get somebody in trouble. Can you imagine? You mean they're hypocrites in the synagogue? What? How can that be? I thought we'd have cleaned that up a long time ago. Well, apparently not. There's hypocrites in the synagogue. And here they are. They've come specifically. Don't really care about the guy. We're here to use him to get somebody else in trouble. That's that's really what's going on. Now, a couple weeks ago with Pastor Stephen, there was a visit to this other event with Sabbath. You remember the end of chapter 2, you had this business of Jesus walking with his with his crew, and they're going through the grain fields, and they begin to pluck heads of grain, and they got in trouble with the Pharisees. I want to remind you of some things that you probably heard two weeks ago with Pastor Stephen. Uh, Jesus never broke God's Sabbath law; he never did. Sometimes people think that well, he was a, he, he was above it, he's Lord of the Sabbath, but he didn't break God's intent for Sabbath. He broke people's expectations of what they should do on Sabbath. Because God, God's gift of Sabbath to the nation of Israel, it was a sign between you read the Old Testament, it was a sign between God and his chosen people based on creation, when God worked and then rested on the seventh, the seventh day, it was given as a gift. It was supposed to be, are you ready? A blessing. It's the blessing of rest to weary people at the time, mostly agrarian uh, field workers. God gives them a gift of rest. He says, no, I'm going to make it a rule or else you're not going to keep it. Stop it. Sit, sit before me. Remember which way is up. Remember me. God would say, and rest. Everybody in your household gets a day off. All your animals get a day off. Everybody who hangs out with you gets a day off. Wow. It was a gift. It was supposed to be a blessing. Uh, Along came people who were trying to help God, who said, we better spell this out, lest we break God's rules. Let me make up a whole bunch of other things to define what it is that you're supposed to do. So let me give you a hundred ways you might break the Sabbath, and you're supposed to learn these and not break any of them. So I'm going to make a whole bunch of rules. And by the time you then keep all my hundred rules, you're working so hard with the checklist, you just worked. And at some point, it's this crazy circle where it's like we're supposed to rest, but I'm not sure if I'm resting enough. And I might work here, so I've got to work really hard to make sure I don't work. And and somehow they had managed to create a system where the blessing of rest was taken away. So God's rules were muddied up with Man's interpretation of it. Now, I have to say, just tongue-in-cheek, and it makes me happy, so I'll, I'm going to go there. I often think here of the, the journey from infancy to adulthood with this, meaning when our, when our kids are babies, they, they're ready to take a nap every 20 minutes. You know how that is. Another nap. Another nap. Then you get to about age two or three, maybe four, and you're going, okay, kid needs a nap. Kid doesn't think so. Doesn't want to miss out. So you have this wrestling around. And then you reach, let's just say, our collective age. Can you imagine a world where there's some big honcho that says, hey, everybody, every day at one, you have to take a nap. How would that be? And I just think, oh, yes, somebody make a rule. I don't know who that is. Close the computer, turn off the phone, power nap. I think this would be a great world. Yeah, it was was, was intended to be a blessing one day a week. Rest and people had come along and tried to make it something it wasn't. So, so in at the end of chapter two, it's about harvesting. You guys were harvesting, well, actually, they weren't, they were having ready lunch. It's called lunch, it's not harvest. But they'd managed to turn it into a Sabbath violation. What they were doing, walking through the harvest or the field and eating, plucking heads of grain, that was allowed in Old Testament law. If you're hungry, your neighbor has some grapes, you can eat a few. You got an apple tree, you can have an apple. You don't fill your bushel basket and take all of his apples, but have an apple if you're hungry, you could. And similarly, there was no law broken here. Well, even on Sabbath. So you come to our text and you have a guy with a withered hand the text describes. So what is it lawful to do on Sabbath? Can I be kind on Sabbath? Can I heal on Sabbath? Now, God's law would say, absolutely, you can be kind on Sabbath. There's never a day when being kind is, is against the law. So God's law would not be broken by this, but they, it's the they, they're watching Jesus to see if they'll break their rules so that they might accuse him. Now, he asks a quite a bold statement in verse four as you see it. Jesus says, Is it lawful on Sabbath, look at the extremes, to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? That's called a merism if you keep track of your English grammar. That is, you're giving two extremes and you mean everything in between, not just the extremes. To do good or to do harm? What about all the other range of motion here? What about Save life or to kill? Kill. That seems really extreme. I know, but I'm covering the whole range of things. I think that's what's going on here. Kill. You might say, well, Jesus, no one's talking about killing anyone. Are they? Well, of course not yet. Verse five, I think is the key to the whole text. And it's the one from which I took my title. And I want to tell you, there are three words that are used here that that Mark uses. They're emotion laden words. And this is the only time in the gospel of Mark that these three words are used. Okay. So there's great emphasis here and powerful emotion so you, you read, he looked around at them, it's the them again, with anger, there's the first, orge, if you like your cool Greek words, it, it, it's strong emotion. He's not slightly bothered. He's not just a little bit tweaked. No, this is, this is anger, not sinful anger, truly righteous anger, grieved. It's another word used only here, deeply grieved. I can't believe it. It makes my heart so sad and seeing their hardness of heart. Cement. That's their heart. Those three words, used only here in Mark, strong emotion attached to all of them. He looked at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Now, I put on your notes here, this is a powerful and comforting statement. You might say, how in the world is this comforting? Well, I will tell you how this is. Jesus looks at their hardness of heart. He looks at injustice. Do they care about this guy who's got a physical need? Not a bit. How much compassion is oozing from their pores? None whatsoever. They're not eager to see Jesus help. They just have their their eye on one target, which is to do somebody bad. No compassion here at all for a person in genuine need unbelief oh yes all the way they're there to pick they're there in a place that's supposed to be a place of learning about the things of of almighty god and that's not why they're there and jesus is angry and may i say that's the right emotion for him to have and it's the right emotion for you to have when you see something that is grossly wrong now we quickly step to sinful anger don't we but i'm affirming to us that when you, when you see something, whether it's in war or you name it, where there is injustice, lack of compassion, where you know that that is, that is just wrong, and you feel strong emotion, you are feeling a godlike emotion at that moment. Now, don't sin with it when you smack somebody or, you know, other ways we can take it sideways. But I'm saying that core emotion is a good godlike emotion. Okay? In fact, there'd be something wrong with your heart. If you saw some of those things and your heart was not that grieved at the hardness of heart. If you can look at certain things and not have a visceral, <clears throat> I, I, that happens to me too. Where you see something and you know that's, you know, that is just not okay. And may I just commend you for that. Don't, don't, don't shy away and say, oh, I shouldn't feel so strongly. You actually, you should. You should. Jesus provides a model here for what God feels like. People ask this sometimes. What does God think when he looks at the mess in the world, when he sees the disasters, things that we read on the news, the pictures we see or don't want to look at, when we see things globally, wars and rumors of wars, or when we see things much closer at hand? What does God think? Well, let me tell you, God in the flesh saw injustice and his heart was torn and it made him angry. He was grieved. Okay. So how does God feel about that? You know, we say about that to somebody colloquially, they express so strongly. And we say, you know, well, how do you really feel? So how does God really feel? Like that. That's how he feels. Now, verse 5, of course, is that big moment, uh, verse, end of verse 5. He says to the man, stretch out your hand. He does it. Now, again, questioning the text, your Bible study methods, the text is silent on the impact of the guy. We don't know where he came from and what his problem was, how he got there. We also don't know how he feels at the end of verse 5. If you're asking questions of the text, remember, community group stuff, Asking questions of the text. wonder how he feels right now. How do you think he feels? It's not in the story. It's not the main point. So Mark leaves it out completely. How does he really feel? Well, ecstatic. This is great. If you've been one-handed for how much of your life and suddenly it's well, this is outstanding. I mean, does he run from the room immediately, bolt for home uh, to tell anybody he loves, look? Does he go out and pick up something because he can I don't know. Was there feeling in his withered hand? I don't know. Maybe maybe for the first time he can feel something with whichever hand it was. We don't know. How does he really feel? Ecstatic. Overjoyed. What words do you have in your thesaurus for this moment? This is great. So the contrast should grab you. Okay, this is a story about real people. So you go from that moment for him, his hand is restored. And verse 6. It's a grinding halt. It's supposed to catch you by surprise. It's supposed to be a stark contrast. So I hope you read the story that way. Because verse 6 comes along. And instead of elation and awe and wonder at everyone in the room, the Pharisees, it's the them. They, back in verse 2, them in verse 4. And they, as well, it's them. The Pharisees went out and immediately, Mark's favorite word, immediately. It sounds like it was right there, perhaps even the same day, they held counsel with the Herodians against him, how to destroy him. Now, I'm on the second side of your sermon notes, where I'm saying there's tremendous irony in the question Jesus asks, of course. Uh, The critics are offended at Jesus doing good on the Sabbath, and they immediately take counsel on how to kill him. Do you see any irony here? It breaks my rules for Jesus to be nice. We should kill him. That doesn't break Sabbath. So, so murder plots are, are out, but being kind is. What kind of weird rules have you come up with? It's, those kinds of things are supposed to catch your attention as you read the text. All right? Wow, that's on Sabbath. They're going out on Sabbath and they're planning to kill somebody? wonder how they justify that. That should catch your attention. Another thing that should catch your attention is who's talking to whom in verse 6. The Pharisees, who are a right-wing religious group, they go out and they they hang out with the Herodians, who are a secular political group. And this is a really, uh, the analogy quickly breaks down, but you get my point if I said this is a group of MAGA people calling the Bernie Sanders camp and saying, let's have lunch. That's what it is, is them looking at each other going, excuse me, hello? I think you just said you're a mega person. You want to hang out. Okay, what's up? Well, we want to kill somebody. That's what it comes down to. We think we need you people on our side to go get this Jesus figure. Wow. Now, I promised you that I was going to meddle with you a bit. So here goes. Next bullet point. People with hard hearts often nitpick about details and rules, and they miss the main point. They miss the point entirely. People who nitpick. Now, by nitpick, I'm meaning something about the heart behind it. Sometimes details and rules matter a lot. Uh, If you're an engineer and you build houses or skyscrapers or something else important, I'm really glad you're into details and rules. Uh, knowing the stress test on a bolt or screw or something going into airplanes, I'm really glad somebody really pays attention to details. That's not what I'm talking about. This is about paying attention to the details of other people's lives that really aren't your business. Or finding fault in areas that aren't yours to think about. Or seeing somebody else sin in ways that maybe you haven't. And finding your heart saying, "Whew, boy bad on them. Good thing I don't sin like that. Did your heart ever respond like that? Lord, thank you that I'm not like that person. They're really bad. Really. Often we say that in areas where we're not even tempted. There are things I'm really not tempted to do. I walked into a Sunday school class today and Somebody saw me coming and said something to the teacher about, you know, if somebody stole a car, like even if Pastor Jay stole a car, he'd go to jail. So I came in and was like, oh, well, hi. And they said, well, don't steal cars. (laughs) And I had good news for them. I'm not tempted in the least to steal your car. Your cars are safe with me. (laughs) So it's pretty easy to judge people who steal cars. What a dumb thing to do. But what about the areas where I'm tempted? Ah, we tend to... Pick on others and give ourselves a pass. Now, the the point then in this particular case, in this text, would be this. Someone is in your midst here in Mark 3 who can heal sick people. He can heal sick people. Do you suppose you should find out who it is before you kill him? Should, Should you maybe find out what power he has or where he came from? Just maybe before you throw him out because he breaks your rules. Should you find out who the guy is? Maybe. That's the point. But they're busy saying, oh, oh, he doesn't check off all of my boxes. Must be bad guy. Hard hearts. People with hard hearts miss the point. Often. Now, I I want to explain my last line here. Uh, I put rule keepers here. Rule keepers often struggle in the presence of grace. And I put it in quotes because I mean something very specific by this. When I say rule keepers, I don't mean people who obey the Bible. That's not what I mean. By rule keepers here and putting it in quotes, I mean people who are more intent on the letter of the law than the heart behind it. They're more figuring out where you put your foot across the line. They have no intention of loving Jesus. They just want to check out how you don't. That's what I mean by that. Rule, rule keepers often miss the point of love of God and love of your neighbor, and they can miss the point. Rule keepers often struggle in the presence of grace. That would be a phrase you can think about, knock around, disagree with, discuss its limits in your community groups. You could say, you could add to that, yes, but, go ahead, have at it. I wrote it so that you would nuance it. Just don't be a rule keeper, okay? As you do. Otherwise, you'll break the point. People with hard hearts often miss the point. I want to go to the next paragraph just very briefly. won't be nearly as long as the first because it's interesting, in verses 7 through 12, there's no specific person mentioned other than Jesus. It's all about the crowd. It's like one, one theme. It's all about the crowd, Jesus withdraws uh, from his, with his disciples. It's like he's trying to get to a place that's perhaps more remote, as I note on your sermon study guide. Uh, attempts to withdraw. This happens at other points in the Gospels. Leaving Capernaum, probably, for areas further north and east, is, is likely the Sea of Galilee. The insistent crowds won't leave him alone. The crowds, as I mentioned to you in a previous sermon, in the, in the Gospel of Mark, the crowds tend to be a problem. They rarely are a crowd of people with faith. There may be some people of inquiry or faith or seekers in the midst of it, but the crowd itself routinely gets in the way of people of genuine, genuine faith. As here, it's like there's a danger to Jesus, this crowd. They're, they're, they're pressing on him so much. In verse 9, there's concern that they might crush him. People who have, have come with specific needs are trying to press around him to touch him. Verse 10, this is an oppressive setting. This is similar to the crowd back at the beginning of chapter 2, where you have that lame man being brought to Jesus. They can't even get to him. They have to break a, roof, a hole in the roof to, to get this guy to Jesus. The crowd, frankly, is in the way. Okay? The crowd is in the way. So it's kind of fascinating to watch what's going on. Jesus is attempting uh, to, to teach, to be with people, and there's a crowd that presses in amongst them. So those are interesting things to think about when you study the gospel of Mark. Now I mentioned to you as well, there's this moment verse 11 where the unclean spirits see him. They fall down before him and cry out, you are the son of God. You'll remember, you'll remember in our previous study beginning first, first time in Mark chapter one, when we set out on our study of the gospel of Mark, I mentioned to you chapter one, verse one, Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So that title is used of Jesus there at the beginning. Then you get to Mark 15, and you have the centurion when Jesus dies, who says, surely this man was the Son of God. But in between those two bookends, you have only the term Son of God showing up on the lips of demons. Isn't that interesting? Huh, wow. Wow. Yeah, well, yeah, you find it in different places. Son of God, Son of God. So in this case, it's not that the statement is wrong. Of course, certainly not said with worshipful intent. And it's never Jesus' intent that demons would be his evangelists. But he orders them not to make him known. I put here on your sermon notes uh, the statement here from the pillar commentary, one of the ones that I showed you on that first Sunday of our study, one of the ones that I routinely read, I appreciate it, it's a good scholastic type read, but this statement, some scholars suggest that the demons expose Jesus' identity, perhaps, in order to escape his authority over them, or to rob him of his strength and prevail over him so, kind of like, you know, one up, you know, kind of like, I'm going to make myself equal to you by saying correctly who you are, perhaps that's what's going on, perhaps not, but it would seem, it would seem that that's the case So I'm saying to us today this, these two things, in verses 1 through 6. People with hard hearts often miss the point. And, as in this last section, people with hard hearts often like a good show. They often like a good show. There's people gathering. They have their own agenda. They've come for their own purposes. Some of them really people with need. But they seem to like a good show. And they come. I'm saying there's no evidence in the text, as with others, a text with the crowd. There's no evidence that they had a soft heart to hear the truth, contentious, in the way, pressing around Jesus. I I, I want to say this today, as you come toward that conclusion of responding to God's word. I told you at the beginning, I was going to ask about your heart. I was going to ask about your heart. Um, Do you have a hard heart? You sensitive to the things of God? Responsive to the Spirit of God? Responsive to the Word of God? Is it you? Do you have a hard heart? When others, when others break God's laws, what does your heart say? Is it a heart of compassion and a longing for them to be reconciled to Him, or is that there is that thing in you that says, "Oh my Lord, I'm so glad I'm not like them"? What is what is your heart like? And I just would love it if in your own life this week, today, the days ahead, if you did a little bit of checking in with God on what's going on in your heart. Lord, where's mine? Where's my heart? I want to have a sensitive heart to the things of God. I want my heart to be guided by the Spirit of God, responsive to the Word of God, lined up with the gospel. I hope you know Jesus today. core message of the Bible is it Jesus Christ left the glory of heaven, went to a cross, bore your sin and mine on the cross, died in our place, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, coming again. The call of scripture is that you would trust him as your savior from sin. That's the call of scripture. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. I'd like to pray for us as we close. Would you stand with me, please, as we do that? Our Father, I thank you today for the word of God. I thank you for your care for us. I thank you for the privilege of placing ourselves under the authority of Scripture. I pray for your people here as we head out into another week. Those that were with us at our earlier hours and those here now, those who have listened online, those who will join us later. I thank you for this. Tune our hearts to yours. Keep us close to the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.